Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. It is fitting that I am talking about musculoskeletal development and adaptation. I also was responsible for this outline for our study group. Sarah knows I was not the best at being very concise. Sometimes it seemed my outlines were as long as the chapter itself. As I have my book open now reviewing, I realize almost every word is highlighted. I did learn over the course of the year of studying to be a little bit better at teasing out important information, and I will continue to practice that skill as I help you through your studying. If you're making study guides on the chapters, they should really just be study guides. When I was studying, I wanted something short and sweet to read so I could soak in all of the important things out of the chapter without having to go back and reread the entire thing. Mind you, I did read each chapter fully and take notes on them. I feel like I should probably apologize to Sarah for my excessive outlines. The musculoskeletal system is insanely adaptable. That can be a good thing and a bad thing. It changes due to the demands or the lack of demands placed on it. Adaptation is the way the hip socket develops into such a stable joint through weight bearing, but different pathologies of the system can lead to impairments, activity restrictions, and limitations in participation. The book outlines the full histological development of muscles. But of note, during the last half of gestational growth is when the number and size of muscle fibers increase rapidly, and most musculoskeletal muscle fibers have developed by birth. So premature infants actually have different muscles from full-term babies. By the end of the first year of life, the remaining muscle fibers are developed. From this point, new muscle fibers originate from either the division of existing cells or the differentiation of myoblasts into secondary myotubes. During the growing years, Muscles increase in length and cross-sectional area through the addition of sarcomeres within individual muscle fibers. Satellite cells proliferate in response to stress or injury to aid in muscle regeneration. They have ability to regenerate after restoration of the damaged muscle fibers. In diseases such as DMD, the rate of muscle degeneration greatly exceeds the rate at which satellite cells can repair the tissue and regenerate themselves. This imbalance exhausts the supply of satellite cells and muscle fibers can no longer be regenerated. DMD will be covered extensively in another episode, but this was just an example of how pathology will present in disease. PCS Advantage has a nice chart of the important milestones in gestational development of the musculoskeletal system on one of their study guides. 
they have this for the pulmonary system as well. Next, let's talk briefly about the muscle tendon unit. Total force production by a muscle tendon unit is influenced by the size of the muscle fibers, the firing rate of the motor unit action potentials, recruitment and de-recruitment patterns, muscle architecture, angle of pull, lever arm, and changes in the length of the muscle. An important concept when discussing the muscle tendon unit is the length tension curve, the LTC. Passive tension is when a muscle is stretched from its resting length to its maximal length. The force produced by the active component depends primarily on the amount of overlap of those actin and myosin filaments. Maximum isometric force decreases as the muscle lengthens or shortens relative to resting length, and the maximum isometric force is produced near the resting length. Clinically speaking, after a certain intervention, say immobilization or Botox, the way the length tension curve looks may be different. It may become steeper or it may shift to the left or the right. A shift to the left indicates a shorter muscle. A shift to the right indicates a longer muscle. And a steeper curve indicates a stiffer muscle. If this is something you get confused on or haven't looked at since PT school, I would suggest watching some YouTube videos to help refresh your memory. Definitely. Similar to muscle, bone also progresses rapidly in the prenatal period, which is why osteopenia in preterm infants is common. Joints begin formation in utero, but the final shape develops throughout childhood under the influence of the forces of movement and compression. A good example of this is the hip joint. At birth, it's relatively unstable. Remember, it has to exit through a fairly small canal. But as we learn to walk and run and jump, the hip develops into a stable joint through these highly compressive forces. This is the reason that standing programs can be so vital in non-ambulatory or late ambulatory children. So that's an example of normal forces leading to development of a joint. But just as these forces can aid in development, abnormal or asymmetrical forces can lead to problems in skeletal development. And even though many conditions are considered non-progressive, the musculoskeletal impairments that accompany conditions will worsen over time with growth. You may see things like scoliosis, hip dislocation, arthritis, overuse syndromes, fractures, etc. Make sure you know the normal progression of angular development of the hip, knee, and ankle joints. Make sure you know the values and definitions for normal torsion and normal version of the hip throughout early development. Remember that torsion means a twist along the long axis of the shaft. This is measured in the hip or the femur with the rider's test. Version is where the head of the femur sits in the acetabulum. So antiverted means the head of the femur is anterior in the acetabulum. In this position, the femur overloads the anterior structures of the hip joint, including the labrum and the joint capsule. Clinically, you will likely see someone toe in to compensate. When they toe in, they sit the head of the femur within the acetabulum further back, minimizing discomfort. Range of motion testing with an antiverted hip will uncover limited external rotation and excessive internal rotation. These are definitions you need to be very comfortable with and normal values and excessive values need to be memorized. 
Similarly, the knee goes through a variety of stages of angles in early childhood. At birth, there is about 16 degrees of genuverum. This decreases over the first one to two years to about neutral. Then it progresses to more valgus position before finally ending in slight genuvalgum around five degrees. And that happens around seven to 13 years of age. Also be familiar with normal tibular fibular torsion and normal foot progression angles. All of these values will help you be confident in conducting a good angular assessment and answering any angular development questions that may come your way. A little pearl of information I learned in studying is that the medial epiphyses grow faster than the lateral epiphyses, leading to the toddler look of knock-kneed and toed-in posture, also known as increased femoral antitorsion and increased genuvalgum. The book also dives into this information in chapter 14, so you will get another chance to look over and review it. However, this information is definitely something we recommend putting on your daily study guide for you to review often. The size and shape of the skeletal system are most susceptible to alterations during the periods of rapid growth. Research suggests that standing programs should begin around the age that typical children begin pulling to stand, and movement will allow compressive forces to be spread throughout the joint surface. So things like treadmill training can combine that weight bearing that we want with movement and possibly create a more desirable force for joint formation. You need to be comfortable and confident with both normal musculoskeletal development as well as abnormal development caused by pathological conditions. Now we're going to move on to chapter six, physical fitness during childhood and adolescence. This chapter is pretty long and lengthy, so I'm only going to reiterate what we feel are the most important concepts. Definitely take a look at this chapter because there are some great charts that help to make the reading a little easier to understand. Physical activity refers to the amount of exercise in which an individual engages. Health-related fitness is a state characteristic that is characterized by an ability to perform daily activities with vigor and traits and capacities that are associated with low risk of premature development of hypokinetic disease. There are four basic components of health-related fitness cardiorespiratory endurance, muscular strength and endurance, flexibility, and body composition. I'm not going to go over all of the equations that are listed in the book. This can be something that you can all read on your own time. What I will go over is the cardiopulmonary variables and response to exercise in children compared to adults. There is a great chart in Campbell that has all of these listed out, so I will be reading directly from that. Here it goes. Heart rate in children is higher. Maximum heart rate in children is around 195 to 215 beats per minute. Stroke volume and cardiac output are both lower in children. Arteriovenous difference is similar. Blood pressure and hemoglobin concentration are both lower in children. Maximal ventilation is similar to adults where submaximal ventilation is higher. Respiratory rate is higher. This is directly related to the fact that kids are smaller. The increased rate compensates for a smaller lung volume. Tidal volume and vital capacity is lower for both maximal and submaximal values, and blood lactate levels are similar or lower. There are many ways to test physical fitness in children. The book has a list of a few that are commonly used in the field. They are listed as the following. The Physical Best Program, the Fitness Gram, National Children, Youth, and Fitness Study 1 and 2, Presidential Youth Fitness Program, and the Brockport Physical Fitness Test. 
The Brockport physical fitness test is essentially the fitness gram, but adapted for visual impairment, intellectual disability, cerebral palsy, spinal cord injury, and amputation, among others. The book then continues to go through the components of physical fitness. For cardiorespiratory fitness, the criterion measure is VO2 max. In the lab, the direct measure is performed by the use of an ergometer during progressive exercise to the point of exhaustion. The indirect measure is a, is a submaximal test, such as a height-specific step test to estimate the VO2 max. In the field, it is commonly done by a long-distance run test, such as the mile or a pacer test. Sorry to bring back haunting memories for those who remember the beeping from the pacer test. The six-minute walk test is also used for children with CP. For muscle strength and endurance, the laboratory measure is dynamometry. In the field, it is measured by some sort of body movement against gravity, such as the 90-degree push-up, the curl-up, and the flexed arm hang. For flexibility, the criterion measure is range of motion. The laboratory measure is to take both extremities' range of motion, as well as posture and spinal mobility. In the field, the sit and reach test is often used. For body composition, chemical analysis is the only direct measure. Other laboratory options that are indirect measures include densitometry, total body water, bioelectric impedance analysis, dual energy X-ray absorptometry. In the field, measurement of skin fold thickness is used. For each of these components, the book goes into detail about differences in measurements and how to measure based on specific diagnoses. We recommend going through these in detail while reading the book, but due to the immense amount of information, we will not go into detail on this podcast. I feel like this will make a great chart to help visualize the different components, how to measure them, and how to adapt them for disabilities. This is what can make the test feel overwhelming. You not only have to know the typical responses to exercise, but you also have to know how different diagnoses or conditions will affect that response. In the past, controversy has existed about training in children. Effective activities for increasing VO2 max in children include running, cycle ergometry, and swimming. It has also been reported that the risk of musculoskeletal injury is no greater for resistance training than for many other sports or activities. Risks are minimized by appropriate program design, sensible progression, and careful selection of program equipment. The principles of, of an effective training program are listed in the book. These include specificity, intensity, frequency, duration, and progression. The biggest takeaways are, changes are specific to the types of exercises performed, intensity should be determined as a percentage of the individual's maximum, a frequency of two to three times a week of training on non-consecutive days is a good rule of thumb, most effective training programs last six to eight weeks in duration, and a program must be progressive in its demands for continued improvement. The book finishes off by going over conditioning for children with disabilities. We highly recommend reading this section in detail. There is also a recommended reading that we felt was very informative and helpful titled, The Utrecht Approach to Exercise in Chronic Childhood Conditions, A Decade in Review by M. Van Brussel. This article was extremely informative and we continuously referenced it during our studying because the article has some great and simple charts for easy access to information. This article was a great resource with clear guides outlined in tables for exercise recommendations for a variety of conditions. It definitely made its way to my master's study guide. 
Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.